What's up, Dub Nation? This is the We Believe Golden State Warriors basketball podcast, a sports ethos presentation. Sam Orlick here, your host. We've got so much to cover and talk about the Warriors coming off an incredible first round victory over the Sacramento Kings, an incredible game seven, a game of games that will be remembered for quite some time. With me today to break this all down is special guest Corey LeBeau. Hey, Sam. Corey, my man. What a day. What a feeling. What a life we live. Holy cow. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. The emotions, the emotional turmoil of being a Warriors fan in the last, I don't know, three, four, five days, you know, going from a tied series into this highly contested game five, taking care of business, you know, half half of or more than half of everyone kind of feeling like C- series was going to be wrapped up in game six, incredible letdown, a lot of turmoil and anxiousness. And then, um, you know, Steph Curry's greatness and in, in the Warriors championship DNA prevails in a game seven masterclass. Absolutely. I mean, first, like, we got to talk about the myth of Steph Curry and that how lucky are we that he's still adding on to his resume this late in his career at this age and everything. But Sam, what you just talked about, what this series has been such an incredible microcosm of the entire season where at first it starts off and we're like, oh my God, what's going to happen? They lost two games on the road. They've never been down 2-0 before. And then they right the ship. They win in game five. It seems like they're finally good. And then game six, the blowout, where it's like, oh, maybe they haven't learned anything at all. And they actually <laughs> are able to pull through. With a, Could you imagine that when they got this matchup, it would be, okay, but you have to win the game seven on the road and have that not be the only road win of the series? Yeah, you couldn't write it any any better, truly. Yeah, and also the way in which they lost, right? I mean, the game, game one and two, it was just like riddled with turnovers, poor execution, um, guys not playing well off the bench. Um, just really, you know, like you kind of said, the microcosm of the regular season feeling like, hey, this whole time we were kind of, you know, holding out faith that Warriors would show up when it mattered most in the playoffs. And, and the first two games were certainly disappointing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously the three point loss in game one, which was really, I think, set the tone for the entire series and then just not coming locked in and ready to go in game two. Obviously, at the end of the day, my whole motto is you got to win 16 games in the playoffs, regardless of how you get there, regardless of how <laughs> pretty it is. The objective is to win 16, whether you do that, you know, in 64 games or 16 games or somewhere in the middle to each their own. But, you know, short of the Warriors not advancing, you know, it almost doesn't you learn from your blunders, but at the same time, you don't need to spend too much time harping on them because at the end of the day, you were, you advanced and, and that's really what it's about in the regular season or sorry, the, the postseason winning. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like there's only so much you can learn and it's amazing the relief, even though that they have to play tomorrow and all of the questions that we still have, like how deep are they? How many people can we rely upon? Are they, do they have enough stamina to get through wins five through 16? Those are all there, but you beat, you you win the first series and it's like, oh, we don't have to have this conversation for at least another week and a half at the end of the next four games. We've got some more road ahead. And then everything changes because the next team isn't going to pose the same problems as Sacramento did. So it all it's all about how you can match up. And these guys have matched up with just about everything. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I want to go back to Steph Curry for a minute before we kind of start looking ahead um got a few stats that i found um intriguing that that i wanted to uh to kind of go through so you know i think the first one is pretty obvious most casual fans have probably already seen this but you know curry's 50 points is nba history for game seven um Mm -hmm. curry's career win percentage in playoff series is now um the best all time curry in his career is 23 and four in playoff series out of mm. 27 playoff series he's only lost four and that's an 85 percent win rate and that's better than any other player at this time now past present current etc um that, that is incredible what an incredible stat i would love to know who is second or do you know the minimum of series played to qualify oh that's a good that is a good um kind of quantifying statement i don't know the minimum series like obviously i'm sure you could have a player who just played in one series and one well no you couldn't just play in one that would require that you'd win all four so maybe there's somebody (laughs) who just won who just you know who won out and that's all they did but i'm pretty sure you know, there were a few other players who were hovering around 80 to 75%, like Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant were some mm-hmm. of the names, but Curry, um, you know, really sitting there at the top. Um, yeah. I mean, next... what a testament to this longevity, right? And to how deep, and it goes around saying, like, they've never lost a series against a Western Conference opponent in the Steve Kerr era. Just absolutely amazing. Um, players at age 35 or older to score 200 points in a playoff series. Steph Curry and Michael Jordan. Ooh, goat talk, baby. Um, Curry became the first player in NBA history to record 20-plus pl- points from three and 20-plus points in the paint in the same game. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. And then as far as aggregate totals, Steph in the first round against the Kings – accrued 34 rebounds 34 assists 34 threes 34 made free throws and averaged 34 points per game damn wow so that was just kind of cool how that worked out 34 <laughs> 34 apparently 30. was the magic number that would have been special if it was 30 um oh uh, yeah 34 we'll take the extra four so. though <laughs> yeah. we'll take the extra four i mean he was just incredible Absolutely incredible. I mean, we've talked about Steph's evolution, right? And how he might not be quite as 
incandescent as his unanimous MVP seasons were and when he was really revolutionizing the game. But I think this series and last year's run too, it just shows how in control he is at all aspects of the game. And this game seven, I mean, he was great the entire series, right? The entire series, maybe instead of game, game six being the outlier, but even in all the losses, he was still a plus pretty much every single time, especially in those first two games. And then in game seven, he's just like, all right, let's forget everything else. I am going to control this game. I'm going to control the pace. I'm going to pick my spots. I'm going to wave off the screens. I'm going to choose when to drive, when to shoot, when to pass. And it was, I mean, he was just master of the chessboard in a way that very few NBA players have ever gotten to. And yes, I know it's the first round and it's against the Kings, but he did the same thing against Boston last year. It's just really special to see. And you know what this game seven reminded me of? This 50 point explosion of just being totally in his element. It reminded me of the 2018 NBA finals with LeBron's famous 51 point game where he was just doing absolutely everything. And the Warriors ended up winning that game. But it was just a guy in complete control of the entire thing. And the way one player can just shape the entire court and Steph had that on game seven, just completely everything's flowed from him and he didn't blow it. I mean, it ended up not even being like just over the finish line. It was a blowout by the end of it. Yeah. And also I think Steph Curry's leadership, um, a lot of reports coming out and a story covered by uh, Marcus Thompson at the athletic talking about, after game six, Steph and Draymond texting late at night, feeling, you know, still reeling from the loss, um, you know, hurting after Malik Monk's comments about them being too old and Draymond wanting to or planning to make a speech to the team and, and Curry basically saying, uh, no, I've got something to say. And, mm -hmm. um, so, and then Sunday before the Warriors hopped on the bus to drive up to Sacramento, uh, had a little team meeting where, you know, the, the short version of the story and speech, which left many of the Warriors uh, with chills in their spine, was um, if you're going to get on this bus, you need to be all in. You need to put your trust into me. You need to do whatever it takes to win, whether that's playing zero minutes or 40. You need to put all of your own personal needs aside. And if that's not for you, fine, go home. But if you're going to get on this bus and show up to this game seven, he implored his teammates for their trust and their commitment to winning and doing whatever it takes and not letting any other noise or personal grievances or uh, bad attitudes or any of that show up. Um, and he led by example, you know, he, he mm -hmm. put it all out there and, and he told his team, if you do this for me, if you give me your trust, if you show up and do everything, I will take us there. Um, and man, what a way to deliver on that and what a way to really get everyone on the same page. And it really showed in their play. Um, the Warriors up the intensity. It wasn't just Steph Curry being a one man show. You know, you had Kavon Looney, Loon God with 21 rebounds, 106 for the series. Uh -huh. um, one of one of three players to get, you know, 20 or more rebounds in the same series. Uh, Clay Thompson actually led the team with the 
plus minus of 30 in that game seven. The rest of the starting lineup was plus 25, which is pretty incredible considering Clay just shot like four of 19. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, just not hit a shot for his life, whether it was from three, whether it was a layup. Um, he had a critical four point play at the end of the third quarter, which I think really gave the Warriors a lot of breathing room, pushing the lead to 10. So you start mm-hmm. that fourth quarter with a 10 point lead. If that, if Clay doesn't hit that shot and the game's sitting there at six, you might think that this game goes a little bit differently because. Every time the Warriors made a big play, you could just see that it crushed the Kings. Um, Mm -hmm. It just really sucked the energy out of the building and sucked the life and the confidence out of them, feeling like, you know, they've got Fox, who's this all-time closer who had delivered in the series. And if that's like a five-point game, you got to think that Fox and Monk are feeling good enough to to make some big shots and keep it close, but 10 points, and the next thing you know, it's 12-14, now you're feeling like it's too much of an uphill battle to deal with. Your shots are a little bit more rushed. Your um, rotations aren't quite on point. You start to feel the pressure. You start to crumble under the magnitude of, man, this is what it's like to play against the uh, the reigning champs. Mm-hmm. I think you're so right. That last shot was so big from Clay to get that double digits, the foul on the three to make it a four-point play. And what happened right beforehand Looney, offensive board, tie up, jump ball. The fact that it came on like the third or fourth opportunity and that's what sent them into the quarter. Impossible not to be demoralized by that. So just the strength that they just kept coming. I will have to say, okay, so Steph, MVP of the series, right? Just absolutely incredible. Proving, especially as Giannis completely melt. I mean, hopefully his back's okay, but as the Bucks completely melted down, Steph... He shouldn't even have been doubted, but right up there in terms of truly the best player in the league. Absolutely sensational. Looney, fabulous, 21 rebounds, just incredible stuff and necessary in all the huge wins. The rest of the team was really not that good, but they played well as a team. So when we're going back to the speech that Steph made where he's like, I need you all to be all in. Like, no more worrying about who's playing or not. No more bad attitudes. You need to, A, believe that we can do it. Actually put in your heart, like trying to throw it on the court, and then trust in me because I think we can do it too. And I think that's all they needed in the sense that Steph's going to go out and drop 50 and get them past this game. That must be pretty powerful to watch as a teammate of being if you're Andrew Wiggins being like man I just got back this has been such a tough series he got really wobbly in game seven when he was actually pretty good for the most part of the series but then to watch Steph just come through and deliver the win it's really exciting stuff I think they're going to walk into this next series with that championship confidence and hopefully maybe a better head on their shoulders too And I think, you know, while maybe on the offensive end, you were certainly lacking for um, additional production in that game seven, right? We mentioned the shooting was of Clay Thompson. Andrew Wiggins had um, quite a few looks that didn't fall, struggled from the free throw line. Draymond Green wasn't necessarily overly aggressive as we saw him in game five when he had 21 points. Mm -hmm. He just really was that spark to to help set the tone. (laughs) But defensively, you limit, you know, the team that had the highest offensive rating in the league last uh, this past regular season to a hundred points. So 
you enable yourself to still go out and win a game because you're not looking to keep up and scoring with the opposition. You're able to hold the other team um, to a reasonable number. And if you look at just converting the number of layups that were the point bank point blank layups that were missed and, and free throws that were missed by Steph and clay and, and even Wiggins um, you're looking mm-hmm. at like a 30 or 40 point blowout. <laughs> I mean, totally. And it's not like the Kings played bad. So, you know, I think, I honestly think that this Kings roster coached by Mike Brown challenged the warriors in a different way that no team has really challenged them in quite some time because of, the versatility of De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk. Um, then you had Mike Brown, who's just got a wealth of different options to bring up off the bench, whether it was Alex Len, whether it was uh, Davion Mitchell. Uh, Terrence Davis came in at times and was just a flamethrower from three, just all these different op- options. Trey Lyles uh, punked the Warriors set in set mm-hmm. across several different games. Kings had so many guys stepping up off the bench. Then you've got Fox. Even though we had completely neutralized Sabonis, they just had so many options in the Warriors. I mean, uh, Kamenga was unplayable. DiVincenzo wasn't really a great option, although he was hustling and playing hard when he was on the floor. Um, GP2 had his moments, but certainly wasn't quite the ace of a defender that we had kind of come to expect who would be able to, to hang with Fox. It was really a starter heavy kind of effort for this entire series with a sprinkle of Jordan Poole and GP2 um, and, and Moses Moody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're so right, Sam, in how different this series felt. Now, maybe we expected this to be against Memphis last year or against Boston last year where the Warriors, instead of being the speeded up, changing basketball whirlwinds, that they had been over their first championship run. Instead, they're the old guys, but that's not necessarily how they played last year. This series was actually, holy crap, this other team is so fast and they just keep coming and the Warriors are tired. And after they had beaten them in game five, they just ran it down their throats in game six to tie the series back up. And it was really a moment of, how are they going to respond to this? And the fact that they were able to do a different game plan to show the really true skill of Steve Kerr and this Warriors team and Steph and Dre and Clay is how they're able to adapt over the series and how, yeah, maybe in one game, in one playoff game, they can't get it done, but you give them seven games to figure out an opponent, they will. And to change it so, actually, we're going to slow it down. We're going to give the ball to Steph for the most part instead of our normal offense. We're going to be so locked in defensively, and we're going to limit our turnovers. And you're right. Like, yeah, the rest of the team offensively did not play well. Like, Clay and Wiggins, who were our number two and three scorers, shot terribly. But I think I heard Draymond say this on his podcast. No free ads. After listening to this one, you can go to listen to that one. But Draymond on... (laughs) Draymond on his podcast said that Steve Kerr texted him after the game being like, I have never seen you all execute a game plan as well as you did in game seven. 
And that comes to the focus. And I think that's kind of what Steph was getting at. Like, hey, I believe in us. We can do this. But in order to do this, you need to trust in this team and you need to trust in me. If we follow this game plan, if we're, I mean, I don't know if that's what he talked about, but if you buy into this team, I'll get us through today and all the way to the mountaintop. And the fact that they ended up winning handily because of it, I hope that's not lost on anybody. Right. This was a 20-point closeout game victory. There was effectively zero doubt, you know, with about six minutes or maybe even a little bit more left in the fourth that the Warriors were going to come away with victory. Um, and, mm-hmm. that's, and that's saying something for how closely contested and how tight this was uh, closing out the third, the third quarter. Absolutely. Garbage time in a game seven. It's unfathomable. Yep. Um, do I- you think in the eight years, we'll call this the ninth, the ninth year of, of, well, Eight years going to the finals, um, but in their ninth kind of playoff series, we're not going to include the the one where they lost in the play-in, um, that there's been an opponent that has been able to do what the Warriors do and play fast and with pace as good uh, or as well as the Kings did. Yeah, and so like in their the Warriors in the sense in the team. sense of yeah, like in the Warriors history of playoff opponents. Has there does anyone else come to mind as being any close to how effective the Kings were at playing with pace, at getting um, getting the ball up the floor quickly, at having a guy like Fox who's so fast but also so lethal from three, who could just get to the mid range at ease, but then if he just pull up from three and light it up, um, even like the Rockets, I feel like the James Harden Rockets didn't necessarily play with this pace they just like Mm-mm. to jack up a bunch of threes so i feel like that just really yeah, put Rockets a lot of pressure were... on the warriors um steph curry especially just had to work so hard to get back on defense to defend and that just put a totally different level of pressure on the warriors to be able to keep up uh with the kings who who at times were happy to lean small i mean the Kings at times looked better without Sabonis on the floor with Trey Lyles at the five. Yeah. I mean, what a game six adjustment by Mike Brown to go even smaller to right when the Warriors thought that they had figured it out to throw in that extra wrinkle and really run them off the floor. I mean, to go back to your question. No, I don't think so. I think Memphis last year kind of played upon with the same pace and maybe with the same capitalizing on the Warriors' mistakes because it's not just how fast you play, but it means that if the Warriors aren't getting stops, that they can't get in transition. And also every missed three and pretty much what it feels like every single Jordan Poole field goal attempt turns into a fast break bucket on the other end. I think the only team who's done it to Sacramento's success was the Oklahoma City Thunder in 2016. And that wasn't just speed, but that was also strength and rebounding. And it was kind of the same level where they seemed to just supersize what the Warriors were already doing. But that was not sustainable in the end, was it? Yeah. No, I Um, thought it was amazing, amazing what they did, Sam. And I got to give a credit right now. Mike Brown coached his dang ass off in this series. And I thought in a lot of times totally outcoached Steve Kerr from game to game. And just with the game plan from the beginning, 
all, kept the Warriors working the entire time, did what the Warriors usually do to other teams, which is basically take everyone else out of the picture. None of the Warriors role players got going. It really became like what you said, just a starter affair and letting on the greatness of Steph Curry carry you home. And I think this might not be hyperbole. There's a chance that this is the hardest series of the playoffs in the sense that I don't think they're going to get another better coach team than they did against the Kings in terms of having an, a coach on the opposing bench who knows everything that they want to do, that the Warriors want to do, able to play to their weaknesses, cut off all of their pet actions, and really come up with an incredible game plan to slow them down, including that game six wrinkle. I think, I mean, Lakers next, and then either the Suns or the Nuggets, and then maybe Boston. I don't think any of the next coaches that we're going to see, they might be better teams. They might be better defenses and players. But I don't think in terms of strategy, they'll be at the same level. And this might be what the Warriors needed, like a really close-to-home sharpening of what they do to prove that they could still win the championship. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, I, I couldn't agree more with, with that sentiment. I mean, I think a lot of the playoffs is trial and error and Mike Brown didn't have any trial or error. It was just, he knew exactly what to do. He knew exactly what, yeah. uh, what sets to run offensively, defensively. He knew what to hunt. He knew, um, how to coach his guys up to look for contact or to try and get into Draymond and and create opportunities for for him to to get thrown out of the game which, which worked early in the series and mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think certainly think that you know what the lakers and then whether it's denver or the suns uh or boston or philly or whoever you know comes out in the east each of those teams will pose a significantly different challenge but i don't think any of those any of the remaining teams any of the remaining potential opponents can can challenge the Warriors in the way that Mike ba- Mike Brown did in this series. Totally. It was, it was the- truly special to, to see that. And also, again, I think part of it was the, the wealth of options that he had to deploy and limited bench that Steve Kerr was comfortable to go to, I think kind of um, was... That was that was an advantage to the Kings. They had more options to go to. They had different guys that could step up, um, depending on which way they want, which way Mike Brown wanted to go. And Steve Kerr's, you know, big adjustments were Draymond suspended. Let's start Jordan Poole. That worked. Let's go for it for a few more games. Draymond Green off the bench, and then back to you know the double bigs, the the Draymond Looney. Um, front court to close out the series but there wasn't a ton of different options different looks it's not like Steve Kerr is like let's go Kaminga GP2 and you know let's go super small I mean sometimes you saw GP2 and DiVincenzo out there Kaminga really he got a couple minutes early in the series and then just was basically unplayable Um, I mean this was the this was the Warriors core running 36 37 38 39, 40 minutes, you know, Kavon Looney's playing 30 plus minutes um, <laughs> yeah. a game. So they really needed their guys to step up and play heavy minutes. And, and they did that and they were ready for it. I think that's 
That's really interesting that you say that because that's absolutely true. But I wonder if it's it's kind of like the chicken and the egg argument, right? Because if you had went to us to try and travel before the series starts, I don't think anyone would have said, well, one of the King's strengths here is going to be their deep bench and the minutes that Trey Lyles is going to give them. And, and those other guys that came off the bench, that's something that Mike Brown found in three different looks. And I want to put pose like two different case studies, right? King's rookie, Keegan Murray, starter, young guy, rookie first playoff experience, games one and two is completely overwhelmed. And they still won those games, but he was completely overwhelmed. And in game three on the road was nearly unplayable. And it was like, oh, he's not ready for this. And then in game four, he comes alive and he becomes really good in games five and six. And he's actually like, wow, he was great. And on the other hand, you've got Kaminga, who, same thing, looked unplayable in games one and two. And then Kerr just completely stripped him from the rotation. Now, I mean, who knows what's right or not, but I'm wondering what you think in terms of how quickly you pull folks, how you coach up young people. Is there something that could change in that? Because that's something I noticed, like, oh, here's another young player on the Kings that looks completely overwhelmed but figured it out. Is that a testament to Keegan Murray over Jonathan Kaminga? Is it something about Mike Brown versus Steve Kerr and the level of trust they've built in? And also, Sam, can you explain to me how Moses Moody gets zero minutes in the regular season and then all of a sudden is their seventh guy in the playoffs? What the (laughs) heck? And deservedly, like more than Dante, more than Gary, more than Jordan, like he was actually making big shots in those last few games. Yeah. So first question, I think it's a little bit specific team team needs specific. So I think for Sacramento and, and Keegan Murray and what Mike Brown was expecting of him was go out there, be aggressive, shoot the ball from three, play tough defense. And Keegan Murray typically was aggressive in the first quarter and then um, kind of lost lost confidence. And so that I think was a little bit easier to implore your young rookie I think he he even had like a quote, I forget at some point what game it was at some point mid-series where it's like, if you pass up open looks, I'm going to kick your ass. Like he's basically like, <laughs> if you catch the ball, you better shoot it if you're open or I'm going to womp you. And for yeah. Kaminga, it was, if you're going to be on the floor, you need a rebound because you're in there for either Wiggins, Draymond, or Loney. And we cannot give up rebounds. And Kaminga didn't rebound. And so regardless of what else Kaminga could have done being like a rim present, like a, like a, a pick and roll um, diving presence, what he might've been able to bring with his athleticism and speed. Um, he has yet to prove consistently that he can come up with rebounds. And what we saw in game seven is that was the difference in the game, right? You've got mm-hmm. Clay Thompson and Andrew Wiggins firing up all these Steph Curry, you know, firing up all of these shots and Looney and Draymond Green are chasing them down. You've got GP2 and DiVincenzo also at times coming up with big second possessions. Um, Kaminga has yet to prove that he can do that, even though he's got the physical tools for it. And so I think that because you're so um, top-loaded with talent, the role players who are going to come in there really need to do their role, you know, really need to be proficient at their roles. And there wasn't really an opportunity to say, Kaminga, we can give you a little bit extra burn here to give you a chance because you've got a healthy Andrew Wiggins, you've got a healthy Draymond Green, you've got a healthy Kavon Looney. Your front court minutes are spent because those guys are um, 
you know, those three guys that I just mentioned are taking up so many of the minutes. And when Kaminga got a chance early in those games, one and two, whether it was, you know, justified or not, he, he didn't succeed in that and in, in establishing that presence. And so yeah. I think that's just, you know, earlier in the season, I think that had been the story, right? Kaminga needs to defend and rebound. The rest of it will come. And he had like a stretch of like a month. And we talked about this. I think you and me, how good Kaminga's being, how much it all clicks for him. And then he goes a stretch of games where he like resets and he just wants to catch the ball and make the highlight real play and, and get into the paint and do his, his, um, his pivot, his pivot game and his pump fakes mm-hmm. and hit those, hit those sweet fadeaway jumpers. And he kind of gets lost in the shuffle of like, Oh yeah, all I need to do is defend and rebound. That's what it's going to get me minutes. And he kind of instead falls in love with what he can, what he would like to do offensively. Yeah. I mean, we've seen over and over again that this guy doesn't stay ready, right? If there's going to be a game where there's a short leash, he looks a little spooked at the beginning. He looks a little out of place. And clearly in the playoffs, Kerr's not going to ride with that. Whereas Moody is somebody who, even when he wasn't playing well, always was ready and ready to go and looks a little unfazed by the moment. I just think it's interesting how quickly those opportunities vanish, especially knowing as we do just from a season of tape that sometimes it takes Kaminga a little bit more to get going in the fact that we clearly could have used another body defensively on Fox and Monk. And also I mean, I saw a stat, Sam, that Steph is averaging or averaged more minutes this series than in any playoff series last year. And regardless of how they won this series, they cannot win the title if this is the minute load for all of them. Like, they just need more from their team. And I think that's something that Kerr's got to figure out in terms of how can I activate the strength in numbers again? Not maybe as much as in 2015, but at least a little bit more because that was that's not sustainable for just the five guys to win a championship. Yeah. No, we 100%. need to get some more folks. Yeah, it's a very it's a very good point, and I think that you know one one caveat to what I said about Kaminga is and Steve Kerr and his rotations is every series is different. So I certainly expect against the Kings, Kaminga is going to get another opportunity, and I think the Kings present a very different challenge, and I think Kaminga might find himself defending LeBron at times, and that might enable gotcha. him to get more roadway. Um, but in this series, with what the Warriors needed, there wasn't really a place for Kaminga on the floor, given where he was at when he was given a chance. Um, yeah. you know, and it's I certainly think that could evolve. And then, and then going back to our point about Mike Brown and how he was able to really muck up our defensive sets, there was, liter- there was very little to none off-ball opportunity for off-ball movement. Almost everything mm-hmm. was um, a lot of pick and a lot of high pick and rolls. And then sure on those offensive rebounds, it was a lot of like open looks, but that's because those are like the second chance opportunities where defenses are in scramble mode. I certainly totally. expect against this Lakers team, the offense is going to look very differently. It's going to enable Steph Curry to get off the ball a little bit more, maybe get some more rest maybe put the ball in Jordan Poole's hands a little bit, but it was very clear <laughs> that Jordan Poole was struggling to be able to attack and initiate offense. And you really needed just to have the ball in, in Curry's hands. Cause there wasn't even a lot of like low post action for Looney and Draymond. Like Mike Brown had basically axed all of our pet plays and a lot of our go-to sets and a lot of our um, motion offense. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And go, again, it goes to Mike Brown's credit of how well they were prepared for the Warriors in terms of cutting all that. I think that's a really interesting point against the Lakers, much different challenges. They're going to be a bigger team. Kaminga could really help with that. But you would almost expect in a vacuum that a team against the young run-and-gun Kings, where we're just going flying back and forth up the floor, that Kaminga might have more of a role there than against the Lakers that are going to want to slow everything down, that are going to be more methodical. And I know in we can't take too much of their regular season matchups into account because every Wiggins was out, LeBron was out, Steph was out, like everyone was out. But the Lakers did a really good job at exposing Kaminga during the regular season and just ignoring him, planting him in the corner, keeping him away from those second chance opportunities. So it'll be interesting to see if Kerr could activate him. And it would just be a shame if he can't because he did show so much progress in the regular season. And yeah. also maybe it goes to against Kerr. You know, we've been talking about this. It's okay if you want to prioritize the veterans at the expense of giving that development developmental time to the youngins but if you're not winning either way and you're the sixth seed then maybe some of those losses you could have given more minutes to Kaminga and all of that so if this is almost kind of like a look what we have wrought in the situation where it's like we don't have a long enough leash for Kaminga we don't trust him enough well whose fault is that as well in terms of how much opportunity it hasn't held Moody back. I thought maybe we would see more of Moody in this series uh, after he proved himself. And maybe we will moving on in the playoffs. But Yeah, and one, one thing about Moses Moody, and he talked about this a little bit in, in some of his post-game interviews, is he, throughout his childhood, um, has always been in those types of, of high-pressure situations, um, playing at an extremely high level, playing in championships for you know, various levels of, of play. And so he is very, he is, he is very mature and experienced and underpoised in these types of situations. Whereas Kaminga is still very raw and young and immature. So I think that mm. also factored into a little bit of Moses Moody being comfortable coming in, taking a three, his very first shot, but it's like comfortable, locked in, open look. Um, fire away he didn't make a lot of mistakes he didn't dribble the ball into the corner like he did kind of in the regular season and throw it away some of those things mm -hmm. that had that had get, gotten him into the Steve Kerr doghouse um, so you know Moses Moody is very much you know second second year player in actuality but almost feels like you know he's like a five-year vet with the way that he carries himself with the way that he talks about being comfortable with a limited playing time and his play certainly embodied that in limited minutes um, in this series. Yeah. I mean, I did not have Moody being more dependable and reliable than Dante DiVincenzo on my first round bingo card. Yeah, was that was certainly a little surprising to see the struggles of DiVincenzo. I mean, he certainly came out there with effort. It wasn't for lack of effort, but um, at times the the execution was lacking right whether it was offensively or defensively you see him trying and trying to go 100 miles an hour um kind of in in parallel to jordan pool but unable to finish you know getting denied at the rim when attacking the basket unable to to hit threes as we had kind of mm -hmm. grown accustomed to in the regular season getting beat off the ball consistently on defense uh, over overplaying guys you know, 35 feet away from the hoop. 
but then coming up with incredible loose balls, grabbing offensive rebounds, making the hustle plays. Um, but it just didn't really all add up. It's like, we didn't need the home run play. We needed the solid play. Um, do the hustle yeah. play, but then don't get beat overplaying Monk 35 feet from the basket. If Monk wants to pull up from 35 feet, let him. Like, he's not Steph yeah. Curry. Yeah, although a couple games I was like, oh my goodness, is this man Steph Curry? <laughs> like, right. out, he balled out of control. But I mean, exactly, right? Like, the what made him pretty much, un, not unplayable because he did play, but what got him benched in crunch time and pretty much in the second half of the last few games was not the fact that he was completely cold shooting, which was sad to see, but defensively, he could not hold up against Fox or Monk, like, at all. Was getting torched by both of them and he had been like a really good defender throughout the whole season so i i don't know how many more guys are going to see like fox and monk that was a really lightning fast hot combo of players that i actually don't think the lakers or the uh suns or the nuggets i mean they have offensive superpowers all on their own but not in that same like hyper jittery point guards that have the ball and can beat anybody and seem to be just on fire constantly they both yeah they both were three mm -hmm. level scorers who also could distribute and they could play off of one another and they could defend so yeah you had to to defend them from three they could pull up from the mid-range they had a floater they could attack and finish at the rim. They're both good from the free throw line, and they were both willing to pass. Absolutely. I mean, and you bring Monk actually... off the bench, right? So, so it's mm-hmm. not even like they're both starting, and like, like you got to deal with Fox and Davion Mitchell, and then Monk. So, I, I certainly think no, none of the other teams remaining in the West or in the East have that type of one-two punch at the uh, at the guard and shooting guard position. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've spent a lot of times praising the Kings, but we just one more thing. De'Aaron Fox was a freaking superhero this series. And I walked away with so much respect for that guy. He, you know, especially when it's like a bad team that becomes a good team for the first time. And the Kings had all the markers of like, regular season tryhards. Like, hey, it's their first time they're good. They're pushing the pace all the time. De'Aaron Fox found a new level and also unlocked a two-way skill of playing offense and defense that was absolutely remarkable. And the Kings are going to be a good team for a long time. That's pretty exciting. It was exciting to see, especially now that we beat them and I don't need to worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got a lot of respect for the Kings. Um, They're incredibly young. They've They've got a long got a long road of success ahead of them with this core that they've built and this uh, situation that they've that they've put themselves in they have got they've got a lot of pieces a lot of talent a lot of opportunity to grow um and you know who knows a couple more shots fall either way and uh, they could have been the ones advancing um, mm-hmm. although and that's you just gotta how it say goes. it's Perfect. You can't have, you couldn't have written a better way than Harrison Barnes missing the game winning shot at, on, at, in San Francisco. It was just, I try not to be petty, but goodness gracious, that made, I felt such joy. And beyond that, that he, he basically became unplayable after that because he had zero confidence in his shot. 
Um, he mm -hmm. basically became just a large forward to bang to bang bodies into um, to draw some fouls, to shoot some free throws. He did come up and, and hit some pretty important, get some pretty important baskets for them in, in games one and two. Yeah. But huge. again, it wasn't, it wasn't with an outside shot. It was putting his head down and using his size and, uh, and totally to get to the rim. No, the way I see a lot of, a lot of Kings fans mm -hmm. pretty upset with him and uh, wanting him gone. But I do think it's important to have those veteran guys, those locker room guys who, um, you know, understand the moment, who don't complain about getting shot attempts, who do the dirty work. Uh, but yeah, it was certainly relishing watching wide open Harrison Barnes miss shots and say, thank God. <laughs> well, <laughs> we've already been on the other side of that. Yeah. Or what did Draymond say? We've seen that film before. We've yes. seen that movie before. I think Mike Brown, the way he handled his rotation, the way he went small in game six, and the way basically Sabonis is the all-star, right? So he stayed on there even as his minutes decreased by a heavy amount in six and seven. But the way he like stopped playing some of his key guys, that confidence in his bench and the way he was able to spread the wealth, I was thinking if Kerr was able to be that nimble in 2016, we probably don't even blow that lead. So I just, a lot of respect for Mike Brown and the coaching dot, job he did. Yeah. Because that's to force that game seven and to make it as close as it was for as long as it was outstanding. So you mentioned Draymond Green. I kind of had a point I want to bring up and, and discuss a little bit on, on Draymond Green. You know, we saw this uh, in the finals last season against the Celtics, Draymond Green getting benched kind of down the stretch in that, in that pivotal game. Um, and here we kind of see it a little bit again. Uh, Draymond Green, you know, mm -hmm. getting suspended in um, in Game Three, and then a willingness to come off the bench in Game Four. It works, and then a willingness to to continue to come off the bench in Game Five and Game Six until they lost. Um, is this a different side of Draymond that showing this? I mean, I don't want to say you know this is the first time he's showing this team first mentality, but in the sense that you know, he's obviously a key piece. He's going to be there to close out games. Um, he was pivotal in the clutch, but a willingness to come off the bench because that's what it was going to take for the Warriors to be successful and win in this series at certain times. Is that kind of a precursor to maybe his contract situation for next year and thinking Ooh. about the future and maybe he's willing to take a little bit less money because, I mean, it's clear that that you know Steph Clay and Draymond are a package deal, right? They they want to mm -hmm. keep the they want to keep the show going. I think whatever questions there were about the greatness of this core, regardless of of whether they go on to win the finals or they lose to the Lakers in the next round, the fact that they were able to come out of this first round with all of the blunders and mistakes and miscues and and limited um, contributions from the bench, so on and so forth just shows that this core has more left in the tank. They, they've got more, more future playoffs that they are deservedly um, that they should get a chance to try and play through. And maybe this is the beginning of seeing this additional side, this a little bit more mature side of Draymond who realizes that he's maybe willing to take a little bit less. If um, that means we can keep this thing together a little bit longer. Thoughts on that. Yeah, that's interesting. So 
him coming off the bench also maybe understanding that in the future he could have a smaller role and a smaller contract for the good of the team. That would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. I mean, I think you're definitely right. This core has shown that you can't break them up. And if this is the last dance, what a mistake that would be because they've still got so much to give. I mean, they just beat this really good team in the Kings in seven games with just the core, right? With literally no help. Imagine if you actually built out a solid veteran laden, smart team from the get go, as opposed to trying to cobble together what was the remains of this season after you decided that your young ones couldn't really play or hack it anymore. So absolutely wholeheartedly agree. We got to go all behind the old guard here. I think that coming off the bench, I think he was doing that because he knew he had messed up and the suspension was pretty outrageous. I think we can all agree like that was absurd to get suspended for game three, but he was still ejected for game two. And you can make the argument they win game two if he stays in the game. So I think with the backdrop of, oh my gosh, Draymond's doing this again, with the fact that it's just the whole season is him trying to like get his voice back in the locker room and get people back in. The fact that Jordan Poole was so not good this series and how do we get him going? I feel like he was doing that kind of because he felt he needed to. And I think the fact that it helped buoy Jordan's confidence was also great. But he was also closing these games. And I don't think there's any doubt in his mind that he knows that he belongs in the starting lineup. And yeah. also, Sam, just one last thing is him coming off the bench or Looney coming off the bench, whichever big it's going to be, it only works if Jordan doesn't suck right because if he sucks there's no point in putting him in the starting lineup and that seemed to be the magical cure for a little bit but it seemed it wore off real quick and we're eventually going to have to have the Jordan Poole conversation especially if they're trying to make a deep run this year yeah and and I think you know part of my statement isn't like hey maybe Draymond should be coming off the bench moving forward it's more that Draymond you know from being suspended, it was a requirement that he, you know, wasn't with the team. And so they figured out a way to win in game three. And Steve Kerr's mentality is once we figured out a way to win, we're going to continue with that until we need to adjust, until we lose. And so mm -hmm. Draymond seconded that by saying, you know, we need more spacing on the floor. Jordan Poole typically does better as a starter than coming off the bench start Jordan Poole, let me come off the bench because of the way that Mike Brown was defending the Warriors. We needed to mm -hmm. have, we needed to have another scoring option on the floor, not Draymond and Looney. Once the Warriors had the huge letdown game six, then it was clear, let's get back to our core group. Let's get back to the, you know, to the main guys and um, get back to business. So it's not to say that Draymond Green would be relegated off the bench for the, for the, um, for the future, for future seasons, but that he's willing to sacrifice his own wants for what the team needs to win. And maybe in some situations, what the team needs to win is for him or Looney to come off the bench, because when you start Draymond and Looney, and we'll see how this goes against the Lakers, if teams are going to sag off so much, um, you can't have, you can't be playing 4v5. You can't be, you can't have, you know, two non-shooters necessarily always on the floor in certain defensive schemes and Draymond showing the willingness 
to be the one to say, I'll come off the bench to help switch up the lineup and change the scheme and enable other guys to go off might be a precursor to also how he feels about his contract in maybe I'm willing to take a little bit less money because that means I can stay a warrior than I want a super max. Like, like, like what was reportedly said by Clay Thompson during this series that Clay Thompson yeah. is looking for a super max extension. Um, somebody is going to need, is going to need to be willing to accept some less money to accept less money to keep this thing going. Or, you know, we're going to have to go back and re-sign Toscano Anderson and everyone else who's, who's willing to, <laughs> to take a minimum deal because there's just not going to be enough money um, for the Warriors to do anything. No MLE, with especially with this new CBA deal set to hit and just really, um, just really, yeah. you know, take a crap on Joe Lacob's purse and, and also further restrict Warriors with, with options in their signings and what they can do. Um, yeah. Definitely. I mean, the money question is going to be the big thing, win or lose at the end of this title because of that, at the end of this uh, season, because of that CBA. I think that's interesting. I mean, Draymond, I thought, showed such a team first attitude and the way to be like, this is what's working. I would, I can't ask Looney to come off the bench because he just dropped 20 rebounds in a must win game and was sensational. And I think there's something so special. We saw it last year too. We saw it times in this year of these legends, Hall of Famers coming off the bench for the good of the team. And then also figuring out how to make an impact as a bench player. I mean, famously when Steph did it in the first round last year against Denver, and he had to play a little differently, right? He had to pick his spots. He had to be aggressive when he came in because he's not getting quite the same amount of minutes that starting does that you get to ease into it so draymond doing the same thing and showing here's how i can make an impact in the bench role and being phenomenal at it like a little bit more burst of energy because he's had some time to rest and to look at the game as it's going on that's very cool i will say that there's also if you want to read cynical side of after he gets ejected for doing normal draymond antics of it being like hey i'm not a problem in the locker room even though i punched my teammate like i can come off the bench everything's okay you could argue that would be to make his contract more palatable than maybe he would be facing if his season ended and the warrior season ended with a draymond expulsion and suspension yeah fair enough i think there's very little doubt in my mind that would the Warriors not have advanced and beaten the Kings, that this probably would have been the Warriors' last dance. With with, with oh my them. gosh, I think very little, very little doubt in my mind that Lacob would um, be willing to extend Draymond at his current salary um, into you know for like another four years. Maybe he would have offered him like a two-year thing, or maybe Draymond would have opted in for. For next season and, and that was it but um i certainly don't think we would have seen another another um you know con- four-year contract extension or just a new deal altogether um locking in draymond for the foreseeable future absolutely i mean i think we joked around on our last podcast where if the warriors lose to the kings in the first round imagine saying that at the beginning of the season like oh yeah the warriors will be the lower seed in the king- against the kings in the first round and then they'd lose I, I feel like Joe Lacob made a bet that he would have to sell the team or something if he lost the Kings <laughs> right. in the first round. 
Right. So it would have been it would have been red alert if they had lost, and deservedly so. That these players, these Hall of Famers that call themselves sixteen game players and pride themselves on being ready in the postseason and not necessarily the regular season, they can't make it past the first round against these young bucks who've never been there before. I think you would rightfully have to say, look at those questions. But they made it through. And they made it through through that kind of collective intelligence and grit that they showed to bounce back from two nothing and then to win a game seven on the road. So I've uh, put this off for um, for as long as I could. Uh, you kind of alluded to this earlier, <laughs> uh, Jordan Poole. <laughs> Woo, baby, I'll let you kind of open. Give your opening thoughts and statements. Obviously, Poole struggled mightily. I think that there's no there's no debate there. It's not a hot take. Jordan Poole probably had, you know, short of maybe Jonathan Kaminga, maybe Jordan Poole had the, you know, second worst performance with impact, right? I think DiVincenzo mm-hmm. probably, you could argue at times, had had maybe less of an impact, but probably also made less mistakes than, than what Jordan Poole did with, with less minutes on the floor. Yeah. So give me your thoughts on, on Jordan Poole. Sam, let me, I don't want to be a hater, right? I don't want to constantly come on this podcast and talk about how terrible Jordan Poole has been. That's not, that's <laughs> not what I want to do. This guy is electric when he plays well and I want him to succeed. He was so atrocious in this series. Like, beyond what we had seen in the regular season because they were able to really hone in and there's something about his ineffectiveness on offense when this happens and the fact that it did happen in the series that makes his turnstile defense so much harder to watch and it's already hard to stop these guys right they're like it's a really good offense they've got great individual game breakers too but to watch like just Jordan Poole just get beat so easily is just too much to bear. And here's what I'll say. He is an exponential player. We've talked about this before. He's an exponential player that where he's good, he's more than good because he's electric and it can cascade and it can like turn into something more and it gets the crowd lit up or it quiets the opposing crowd. He can be like really electric and powerful, but it goes the same way in the other direction too, where when he's bad, he's worse than just being, for example, like Don, you mentioned Dante. Dante wasn't good and he was ineffective, but he wasn't constantly messing up and making it harder for the Warriors. Jordan Poole, I mean, it's like every single shot he had would either like be such an atrocious clank if he was shooting a three that it would power a, a, a transition break the other way, or he would take these wild swings, go to the rim, totally miss it, and then he would be on the ground. So it's a five on four play the other way. And he has got to find a way to be more under control that he's not putting the team at risk. And I think... He had a couple, he had some good moments, especially in games three and four that he played. Okay. Maybe not game four. There's one game where he was completely out of control, but at home, he was a little bit better. And Draymond said something. Did you see all those clips in, in game six of kind of Jordan Poole walking to the bench and yeah. waving away yeah, Draymond yeah. and stuff? Yeah. You know, I was, again, on the Draymond podcast, he mentioned that, look, he tried to tell Jordan, like, 
the team feeds off of your energy. And when you're feeling and you're playing good and you're happy, we can feel it. But when you're playing bad, we can feel that too. And you've yep. got to find a way to regulate that behavior. I think that's one of the big speech, one of the big things of Steph's speech with him and Kaminga. It's like, we've got to get our heads in the game here. And that even if we can't give up hope and let the frustration take us over, that's the big thing I'm going to look for with him because he's shown he can do it before. He's a talented guy, but this guy can't be doing his like one man jazz drum solo out there while the rest of the Warriors are trying to play basketball. Yeah, I mean, the, the struggles were, his struggles were indisputable. Um, you know, shooting 33% from the field, uh, 25% from three, 70, oh. 77% from the line. Um, but, you know, also surprisingly, he only had a total of seven turnovers um, for the series, but I would, you know, kind of, quantify that was saying a lot of his shots were shot turnovers mm-hmm. because his missed layups were basically an automatic fast break for Sacramento. Um, yeah. Where, where he's it, on the ground, like in the stands, like he's not right. even able to get back on defense. Yeah. And so, you know, he only had one game where he shot over 50%, which was game four, where he was eight of 15 from the field, which was a, a series high 22 points. He had 17 points in game one, which was um, mostly behind uh, seven of eight free throw shooting. Um, mm-hmm. Another game, game three, he had 16 points. Um, game five, he had 10 points. And then the other three games, he was held to uh, to under 10. Um, interesting enough, I did a little comparison, Poole and DiVincenzo. So Poole played 160 minutes, DiVincenzo 120 DiVincenzo had 20 rebounds and 23 assists. Poole had 17 rebounds and 21 assists um, Mm. in almost 40 more minutes of play. So, I mean, you could tell um, from watching the game that Jordan Poole, you know, was being kind of implored to be aggressive, to shoot the ball, to attack the basket, because really nobody else was able to outside of Curry, right? Clay was doing his catch and shoot thing. Wiggins was trying to, but... You know, sometimes Wiggins is more of like a a post-up guy who settles for a shot in the paint than just like, let me put my head down and and really attack and get all the way to the rim. Um, Mm -hmm. And Poole had kind of grown accustomed to getting a lot of contact in this past regular season in in a parade to the foul line. And that certainly wasn't the case. I think that was a little bit of a uh, growing situation for him to kind of grow and learn. I am certainly surprised to see by the limited number of turnovers that he had, because it certainly felt like he dribbled it (laughs) off his foot three times a game, but to see that he averaged one turnover a game um, is pretty good. Uh, But it's, it's the shot selection. It's the patience. Um, You know, his, his three point shot obviously wasn't there. Uh, even his free throws. Uh, game five, oh he, was, he was one of three from the line. Game six, he was two of four. So even losing confidence in his free throws, um, I think overall this was a really great game for a really great series for him to learn. And obviously, again, the Mike Brown effect. Mike Brown obviously knew Jordan Poole was the X factor. If Poole's if Poole's scoring twenty points a game like he did in the first round against Denver last series, this would have been a wrap four zero. No question. Game out. Game over. Right. This would have been a sweep because there was just too much offense, right, for that for that Denver team to deal with. But when you've got Poole coming off the bench or starting, 
you know, becoming a volume shooter, um, not able to not able to hit his shots, not able not able to facilitate, um, and basically, you know, half of his shots or more than half his shots are shot turnovers going the other way to transition. He quickly mm-hmm. becomes a liability because you're right, he's not he's not a defensive sieve, he's not a plus on the defensive end, and it was certainly a frustrating series for him, right? Feeling like he's had you know so much success this season being in and out of the starting lineup with Steph Curry missing all that time really kind of growing into this budding star at times and getting more spotlight and attention in the media and then you know feeling like he's going to channel it all into Sacramento and then basically feeling himself negated right feeling feeling himself have a shrinking impact on the team um, really trying to go out there and do what the coaching staff wants him to do and not being able to to realize the results, to, to have the impact that he wants to have, dealing with the frustrations as we saw in some of those clips where he doesn't want, you know, guy tries to give him a high five, he slaps the hand away, doesn't want to be talked mm-hmm. to. Um, and that, you know, driving how much, you know, how much court time he could get and how much he was on the floor. And, and you know, game seven, he played – 19 minutes. He was three of nine from the field, two of six from three, three rebounds, two assists, a block, a turnover. Um, and he was minus two, but you know, it, 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 we had to kind of go away from him because Mike Brown had effectively neutralized him and Poole had lost his confidence in this series and wasn't able to regain it. Yeah. You know, absolutely. I mean, you can credit Mike Brown, you can credit just the playoff atmosphere. I think that's a really interesting point that he had really figured after an incredibly frustrating season from him, right? And, like, I think there's no way you can deny that this was a step back for him if you look at the season. There's still a whole postseason to play in the season. I mean, he was in and out of the lineup. He's figuring it all out. He had finally found something in the last, the latter run of the regular season going to the line, doing something that none of the other warriors can really do, which is put your head down, get fouled. Steph can do it sometimes, but you know, he's not as good at getting to the line as other folks. And to have that taken away from him with the physicality and him getting thrown into the stands and falling over and all of that, but not getting rewarded with those free throws. I think that really took a lot out of him and we'll see whether he can grow for it from it because it's just going to continue to be that way throughout the rest of the playoffs, right? It's not going to, like, the calls are going to get any easier. I think one thing you mentioned that was, you know, really prescient there with Jordan Poole is that it's not just the defense, it's not just the shot turnovers, it's also how much of a black hole he can become on offense, too, when he's holding the ball. He didn't get anybody involved, and he's a good passer, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where a lot of the turnovers come from, and he wasn't able to get anyone involved. It often felt like when he, he would almost be stubborn about it and putting his head down and just going for it even when there wasn't really a lane open it's almost like they baited him into it as well yeah i mean and that's pretty stunning i think that's pretty eye-opening for the warriors like here was our young guy who was supposed to be this role and he got baited into this run and gun style and completely fell apart like he could not handle the pace and he could not make the right decisions and i think the it's even more bitter looking at the other end Because how could you not say that Malik Monk, like you could have said that was one of the X factors at the beginning of the series. Like who's going to play better, Malik Monk or Jordan Poole, right? They're both the sixth men who fill that kind of score first electric need for the team. And Monk, I mean, not even comparable, not even comparable. 
And I think a lot of this team's problems has come down to the fact that there's been a lot of roster mismanagement. They haven't left themselves a lot of things on the margins to get by. But the fact that he hasn't been able to be the clear sixth man of the year candidate that they so clearly thought he was going to step into this year has really compromised a lot of their rotations and depth and everything that they're trying to do. He's got to figure out a way to make an impact moving forward. And I think maybe even seeing like with his attitude, Draymond said his attitude in game seven was much better, even though he was a minus two. He still made two big threes in game seven, even if he wasn't shooting great. You know, if he can find a way to keep his head in the game moving forward and kind of find some of that magic, I think we might get a chance next round because we have home court advantage against the Lakers. And that's such a big boon for all of our role players, but especially Jordan. Yeah, and I think the Lakers have slightly different pieces to be able to try and stop Jordan Poole. Again, also um, different different coach, different different sets. Um, you know, and I, I think for the regular season, I kind of shrugged that off a little bit because I think the regular season struggles were, were a little bit of a microcosm of like, or roster construction and missing Andrew Wiggins for 25 games and all the games that Steph Curry missed and and the way that the the, the rotation shaked out. I think if you could go back in time and say you've got a healthy GP2 coming into the se- coming into the season, um, mm-hmm. you've got you've got a real legitimate second unit um, that you put Jordan Poole into this different situation where he can excel. Whereas I think for most of this season he was being asked to be more of like a Steph Curry light. And so mm-hmm. you see him constantly probing to push his game to the limits of, you know, walking the tightrope from that's, you know, a highlight real play or that's that's dribbling off my foot or that's a shot turnover running the other way. And it's a very fine line for him. Um, but, you know, the only thing that I give to, you know, that I give him a little bit of, of credit silver lining for is like, other than Steph Curry in, in this series and the way that the Kings were defending the Warriors, nobody else was consistently willing to attack the rim as ferociously as he was. The few times sure. that DiVincenzo did, he was sent away just the same as Poole, as Poole was. Yeah. Poole, kept, Poole kept trying. And so as frustrating as it was to see how many shots at the rim he missed, to see him get... I mean, he was getting hammered on some of these layup attempts, but for whatever reason, you know, they weren't calling it, you know, for a lot of these fouls. You know, frankly, I, I think short of how the first two games were officiated in Sacramento and the way that they dealt with the suspension, I actually really appreciated how they officiated game seven, which was just let them play. Um, they they yeah. tend to call more fouls like on the wings and outside of the paint, but just really let 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 them go to work in the pain and, and don't muck it up with a bunch of foul calls. Um, so I think that will be interesting to see how Jordan Poole can take that feedback, take that opportunity to, of experience and growth because that, that Denver series last year, he was really just free and open to do whatever he wanted. Denver wasn't really locked into him. He got all these open looks. Then they're selling out to him at the three point line that he can just, you know, gracefully, you know, at, you know, just gall- uh, gall- gallivant to the basket and, and have some pretty finishes. And this was like dribbling through three guys through a Euro step and he's barely got enough umph to like get the ball into the hoop after the 
acrobatics that he did just to like get himself there. And then, oh, by the way, you know, half the time the Warriors tried to do like dump off passes to, to Kavon Looney under the rim. He was getting snuffed by like Trey Lyles and, and Alex Len and oh, Simonis yeah. that were just, that were just looking like all time defenders. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's something that's really concerning for the Warriors as a whole. And I think one of Mike Brown's really brilliant strategies here is that he basically said, screw the rim protection. Like we're going to hug up on you guys, make sure you can't do any of your pet actions and trust that we'll be back there. And the Warriors, even without any like big centers on the floor, couldn't make them pay really. And I think eventually you saw them over the course of the series, figure it out. I mean, Stefan controlling game seven and also Draymond's 20 point, like masterclass in game five, they figured out how to eventually get to the rim with more of a focus but it's really interesting that I wonder if like Darvin Ham with the Lakers or any other coaches are going to look at that and be like, oh, that's pretty interesting. Instead of having someone at the rim to stop these guys, let's make sure that we take away all of these threes and then trust that they're not going to get to the rim on us because they couldn't really make the Kings pay overall. And it's now we're going to go against Anthony Davis and some guys who can cover a lot more ground than the Kings defenders could. I think also, you know, it comes down to to outside shooting. Um, mm-hmm. Moody had five threes in the series. DiVincenzo had six threes in the series. Poole had nine threes in the series. Like, if you get those numbers up to normal shooting percentages where DiVincenzo's hitting two or three threes a game, Poole's hitting two or three threes a game, Moody, you know... That changes mm-hmm. everything. But the fact that you're getting absolutely nothing from your outside shooters, um, you know, and you even clump throw Clay in there as well, who's having a tough time, although he hit some very big shots, that changes a lot of what the defense is willing to do or not do. Um, and so when you look at the Kings, like we talked about, Trey Lyles had that game where he hit like four threes, Terrence Davis mm-hmm. the same, Davion Mitchell, who was like, all right, let him shoot. And he's like knocking down threes left and right. Like nobody's just like the Kings got all of their guys coming off the bench. You know, Keegan, we talked about Keegan Murray earlier hitting a bunch of threes. Kevin Herter and Harrison Barnes seemed like the only two guys on the Kings who I felt okay with shooting the ball. Anybody else in a Kings jersey and maybe Sabonis. Kevin <laughs> Herter, Sabonis, and Barnes couldn't hit a shot for their life, but everyone else on yeah. the Kings whatever three-pointer they they threw up there it it felt like it was going in Um, yeah and when you lose that when you lose that floor spacing and you're not able to put pressure on on opposing defenses by being able to knock down your open shots it really puts a lot of pressure on trying to generate some offense totally totally i mean it's what they've been dealing with the entire season right in terms of going on the road and everyone just is lights out against them we'll see if they can if that luck will turn, if they can figure it out, I think it'll help having home court in the next rounds, but we'll see. Credit to the Warriors that they did keep Kevin Herter and other guys from getting going. And that when they did try to stop, like those are the guys they leave open for a reason. And sometimes they made them pay, but over the course of the seven games, they didn't. So there you go. Yeah. So um, any kind of, closing thoughts here on the Kings and just kind of talk a little bit about the Lakers and, and what to look, what we might be looking for. Yeah. You know, 
No closing thoughts. I think this was a hard series. I think no matter what, that first round series was going to be intense because Wiggins had just come back. They're figuring out the rotation. They're figuring out their styles. They just never really had a regular season to put it all together. Something went wrong every single time. Now that they've made it out of the first round, that they had a seven-game, like, ferocious, like, danger room testing of their style, of their tenacity, of their composure, I would be really upset if I was a Lakers fan watching the Warriors come out of that series or anyone else in the West being like, oh, shit. Have they pulled, like, have they gotten it together? Like, are the reigning champs back to their swagger mode? I think that I'd be really worried because I think they've kind of figured some stuff out. And we didn't even talk about how incredible, you know, Andrew Wiggins just ramped up after missing the last 25 games of the regular season, Um, a little shaky in the first game. And basically by game two and on back to playing 36, 37 minutes a night. Oh my God. Insane production. Like it's, unbelievable that he missed that much time and he was a such a huge cog for this entire series hit some really big baskets in game five and kind of kevin durant fashion hitting those mid-range those turnaround mid-range shots oh yeah Um, rebounding playing tough defense big time stuff and honestly like Fox got by everybody including gary payton but wiggins was able to actually do a really good job on him so Hopefully he's able to continue ramping up and we're not going to see it get more tired throughout, but he's going to be huge. I mean, he just solves so many questions for this team and like all of these frustrating things we're watching towards the second half of the season. It's like, Oh yeah, Wiggins will help with rebounding. Oh, Wiggins can make that shot. Oh, Wiggins can defend that player. He's such a key piece for them. Last thing I have on, on this series and then we can close the book. Um, Looney averaged 17 rebounds per 36 minutes in this series, which is more than Dennis Rodman averaged per 36 in any postseason he played in. Oh, my goodness. Honestly, Sam, we didn't give Kevon Looney enough credit for just how sensational he was. He was the second best player for the Warriors this series. 100%. And they just don't win without him. I mean, to do all of that, the defense and the – I mean, the rebounding is – otherworldly for a team that has so long struggled with rebounding even in the Draymond Green Andrew Bogut era rebounding has never been like the strength of theirs watching Looney come alive for 20 plus rebounds whenever we need a big game is absolutely incredible to watch and I'm going to be really interested you can already see it on Twitter being like oh you think Anthony Davis is worried about Kevon Looney and I don't think he's worried, but it'll be interesting to see Looney against these big Lakers and see if he can make the same impact. Yep. Could not agree more. Looney, probably the most underrated center in the NBA, certainly proven to be one of the more elite centers in today's NBA. Totally. I mean, like, what are what are we talking about here, Sam, when Sabonis is going to be third-team All-NBA and, like, rightfully so, had a great season and gets completely outplayed by Kevon Looney? I mean, Led the league in double-doubles and in rebound, total rebounds for the entire season, and Looney just crapped on his head, and he just had no chance. 
When they let them play, Looney just completely smothered Sabonis offensively and defensively to the point that Sabonis was not even comfortable taking wide open jumpers. He just stopped even looking at the basket. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen a great player get so taken out of a series like that before. It was, I mean, a Looney Warriors Kerr masterclass. And the fact that Looney, it was like really Looney rather than Dre. Remember last year, Jokic, who's like Sabonis, but way, way bigger and better. You know, it was Draymond on the key possessions against Jokic to even try to limit him at all. But this series, it was Looney, and then Draymond could do whatever else, like guarding Fox. I'm really interested to see if he can go toe-to-toe with Anthony Davis. I'm not expecting 20-something rebounds. I don't think LeBron will let that happen. But if he can have some double-doubles, if he can make an impact, get some of those offensive boards then we're going to be in really good shape. If anything, he's even more important in this next series than he was this time. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting, right? Warriors struggled against the Lakers in the regular season. Um, Some of those games were without Curry and Wiggins. Some of those games were without LeBron. Obviously, this new look Lakers, um, they've been kind of on a tear uh, at the end of the regular season. They just really had their way with the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, I think we can expect a lot of drop coverage from Anthony Davis doing more or less what we just did against the bonus, right? If, if Looney and Draymond are both in the game, Davis is going to be on one of them and he is going to be camped in the paint. And so that means that there's not going to be a lot of looks at the rim unless we're able to pull him out. Um, but I think it's also going to enable a lot more movement for the warriors. So I think there's going to be a lot more opportunity to get open looks on the perimeter it's just going to be a matter of of knocking them down so i think we'll see a little bit more creativity in in lineups and options because sure they've got d'angelo russell they've got dennis schroeder right austin reeves has been on a tear to close the regular season but these guys are not as quick as fox and monk they're you know they've got malik monk who can certainly you know turn into a uh, walking bucket but in in a completely different Oh, sorry. Yeah. Malik Beasley. Um, Malik's. Yeah. (laughs) um, But I think in very different ways, right? D'Angelo Russell is much more crafty um, in using his body and positioning than he's just going to blow right by you. So I think that enables Steve Kerr to have a little bit more flexibility with the lineups and the rotations. Um, I'd like to see, you know, us not having to play Steph Curry 39 minutes a night um, to Mm -hmm. to win this series. Also completely different coming into this with home court advantage, you know, two games at home versus, you know, starting your series down 0-2. So, I mean, the Lakers are basically, in a way, kind of the polar opposite of the Kings. They're going to play slower. They've got a much bigger front court. Uh, Jared Vanderbilt, I think, is the big X factor for me. You know, is he going to be defending Curry and Poole and how effective is he going to be? Uh, are the Lakers going to just pound us in the paint and inside? Who's going to show up for the Lakers shooting um, shooting from the perimeter? Uh, you know, what version of, of LeBron is going to show up, right? The LeBron mm-hmm. of, of Cleveland or, or the LeBron that's a little bit more offensive-minded and, and, and kind of a step slow defensively. Um, and then for the Warriors, right, everybody who just was pretty upset towards the end of the series about not getting playing time, that all kind of resets. DiVincenzo, Kaminga, Moody, Poole, new series, new opportunity, new matchups. 
hit the reset button. Hopefully they've kind of watched film and learned and, and gotten some pointers from the coaching staff to be able to um, be successful. I mean, it would great. It would be great to see more production up and down the lineup, you know, Steph Curry with like a 20 and 10 kind of game, right? 20 points mm-hmm. to assists instead of like this series, he, his assists were pretty low because it was basically on his shoulders to generate points. Um, and so I'd love to see, you know, Looney was really more of the assist man in, in this series. Yeah. Kind of like, um, so I think just so many different looks and, and different pieces and different issues that this, uh, this matchup presents itself than, than the last one. Definitely. I mean, you're so right. The Lakers are bigger and stronger and that front court of Davis, LeBron and Vanderbilt is going to be really intense to work with, but guard wise on the perimeter Reeves is good. I mean, Dennis Schroeder can get hot. Malik Beasley can get hot. Nowhere near the level of fireworks that we saw in Sacramento offensively too i mean like this is not a great offensive team they're a defensive team and that also means that on but for on defense it's their front court i don't think i mean schroeder or beasley or reeves like none of them can stay in front of steph so are we going to be able to see vanderpilt on steph how are they going to handle the steph question so i think that means that clay and pool have to be better offensively this series they've got to make some shots they're going to be open how can you kind of draw some of those guys out? And then can Draymond and Looney survive in the paint in terms of can we not can we get any defensive rebounds? That's what I'm gonna be looking for. Yeah, because Davis be... will certainly settle for shooting, right? I mean, he'll 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 fire from three if he's wide open. He's comfortable in the mid-range, certainly more so than Sabonis. Yeah, I mean, you could argue Draymond's greatest games or his greatest value has come in Anthony Davis matchups. It's just yeah, insane in how days. Yeah. And I mean, even in the play in game, we ended up losing that, but the, the performance of Draymond against Davis defensively, just absolute masterclass of being able to go toe to toe with these guys. Does he have that in him for another seven game series after this seven game series is Looney going to be able to stand up. And then, yeah, what's, LeBron's going to pick his spots. How is he going to do it? Is he going to be more of a shooter? Or is he going to realize that going inside is the best way? Can we activate Iguodala for some LeBron assistance here? A lot of questions coming through. I don't think Iguodala is cleared to play yet. I think he's still a but few, we need a few weeks him away. <laughs> Can you imagine game five? It's tied 2-2. We come back to chase and Iguodala comes in. Oh. I mean, that guy guards LeBron better than anyone on the planet. So, I've also seen some interesting stats in, in limited time. Kaminga's been fairly good against LeBron. It'd be interesting to see, to your point earlier, if this is uh, Kaminga's opportunity to get activated and, and kind of show his growth and, and show that he can um, contribute on this team. Because um, I certainly think that if – I think we kind of said this earlier. If, if we need to go, you know, five – you know, seven guys, but five of them playing, you know, 30 to 30 to 39 minutes a night. I, I don't see that being sustainable for the postseason run. You're going to need yeah. Moses Moody to come off the bench and score 10 to 15. You're going to need Jordan Poole to have a couple 20 point games. You need DiVincenzo or GP2 to score in the teams. There needs to be some productivity off the bench. And in this defensive minded game, you're going to need some guys to step up and hit shots. And I think the Lakers 
are going to concede some open perimeter looks and guys got to be totally. ready and knock them down. Um, but I think that the Warriors are going to have a lot, a much more difficult time scoring in the paint against the Lakers than they did against the Kings. Oh, I think yeah. against the Kings, it was harder to get into the paint, but once they were there, they could finish. I think for the Lakers, mm-hmm. it's going to be easier to get into the paint, but then can you finish over Davis? It's literally where they will be guiding them into. It's like, no, please come into the paint. We would love that. Let us swallow that up. And then LeBron can do his annoying, sarcastic little smirks at the Splash Brothers. No, it's going to be electric, man. I mean, I can't believe it. Steph versus LeBron in 2023 in the second round of the playoffs. It's after the starts that these two teams had, three and seven, and then two and ten for the um, Lakers. Just... To see them pull it together, veteran-laden team, ah, it's exciting. I the really fact that we have home court advantage in the second round after finishing as a sixth seed. Absolutely. It's kind of like last year we were the third seed and then still managed to have home court pretty much the whole postseason except for one round because the Suns completely choked up and weren't able to make it. So maybe this will be a sign of things to come. All right, man. I think that's all that I got. Obviously, a lot to cover here, and uh, it's going to be tough. These uh, one-game turnarounds, they don't really give you much time to uh, to lament or appreciate the moment. It's like one game, you got a day off, and then right back into it. So um, it's going to yeah. be hard to try and find time to, uh, to get back onto the pod, but we'll see if we can do I'd like to try and do a mid-series kind of uh, episode and see where things are at, but um, we'll see absolutely man we'll get we'll get it cracking a lot of things dissect especially as we go further and further into the postseason but we know that this team can do that as they get further and they're smarter and they make those adjustments excited to see them in the second round any predictions before it starts oh man um i got warriors in five i think the lakers are going to be hard but i think i think the kings were really Honestly, I think I think the Kings were the hardest matchup for the Warriors this entire postseason. I don't think any other opponent had the had the ability to push them and challenge them and really uh, highlight their weaknesses on both ends the way that the Kings did. And I think that it's it's all downhill from here with the way that the team was able to come together. If that message is embodied by the entire roster when you show up to the arena or you get on that bus to, to head down to Los Angeles, we will probably fly when you head on that plane <laughs> to fly down to Los <laughs> Angeles or Boston or Denver, wherever they go, you leave it all on the floor every night and let, let, you know, trust in the core and let the leaders lead and do what you need to do off the bench. Um, you know, I think after that game seven, I've, I've got these guys going all the way um, if they can just stick to it. And, and I think the Lakers, uh, the Lakers are going to be an interesting challenge, but yeah, I got Warriors in five. What about you? Ooh, Warriors in five. I think the Warriors are going to win five. Is, that's pretty quick work of a LeBron team. That would be pretty sensational. I'll say six out of respect to LeBron, but I don't think – I think the Warriors have this. I'm not sure they present the same problems, and I think the fact that they're going to be a slower team, that the longer it goes on for them as well – is going to be more helpful for the Warriors. It'll be a nice change of pace than these young guns who are just flying up and around. 
if you can get into Davis's body on every single play and make him fall to the ground as much as Jordan Poole, I think I think the Warriors will be in good shape. Not that I want not that I want Davis to get hurt. I'd love to see this to be everyone to be healthy and and you know everyone able to to play. But at the end of the day, you know Davis is glass ankles. You know you got to put it to the test and and really force him to uh, to go all out and and see if he can hold up. Definitely. And the same with LeBron too. It's like, that's going to be a big thing for Wiggins and Kaminga, whoever is in that role is like, these guys are old, make them work every possession. Don't bail them out with stupid early threes or turnovers, make them work, grind them down. I think the dubs can do that. Well, cheers, Corey. Corey, always appreciate you having it hopping on the show and uh, let's go dub nation. Of course. Game seven miracle. Onwards and upwards. Let's take this thing all the way to the top. Love talking to you, Sam. And once again, this has been a We Believe Golden State Warriors basketball podcast. If you haven't already, please give me a follow over at Twitter. That's at SKORLIC. Subscribe, rate, and review the show. Let's go, Dub Nation. And catch you on the next one.